Thank you, Alyssa, for leading us into God's presence. I love worshiping the Lord, saturating his presence, loving him. Now, recall that often at this point in our worship gatherings, we pause to listen to the Holy Spirit and share in words of wisdom or prophetic words together. In this new setting, remember to email me if you're sensing something prophetically. Uh, That happened this week, and I'd like to share that now. One thing that's been mentioned recently is a call for God's people to have that deep reverence for God, what's called the fear of the Lord in the Bible, not meaning a cringing fear, but a deep reverence for God. Proverbs says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So as we continue to grow in grace, let's not lose sight of the fact that our God is holy, majestic, all pure, and glorious, and a heart filled with grace and the flaming love of God is not going to want to bring any smudge on his glory by careless thoughts, words, or deeds. So Lord, give us a deep reverence for you. After sharing in the word this morning, we're going to share in communion together and we'll be celebrating this year's graduates. So stay with us. So Sojourn Campus Church, our call really very simple, to pray, to develop leaders, and to send you, those leaders, back into the world as disciples of Jesus. Pray, train, and send. So today we're going to celebrate some graduates that have been equipped with training at a couple different universities to serve needs in the world. But all of us have a calling to serve And we're praying this morning you'll be renewed in your call. Small group leaders that are listening today, be alert to opportunity to give away ministry, to share the things that are shared today. So these graduates, what are we sending them into? Well, we're sending them into a world that has been cut loose from any kind of biblical truth. When society moves away from God, people grow spiritually hard, and faithful believers can feel pressure to compromise. Jeremiah faced that issue very much like we do today. As his society moved away from God, one could go with the flow or stand strong. And so what we're going to do this morning is I'll take several scriptures out of Jeremiah 17, 18, 19, and 20 and just bring them together and help us see the whole message of this issue of Uh, how we choose God. So our call, again, as a church is to make disciples, and disciples choose the Lord. We choose God. We choose to follow him. But what does it mean to choose God? And so the first thing that Jeremiah highlights, first aspect of choosing God, is to trust. Let's read together Jeremiah 17, 24, and 25. It's the Sabbath day sermon, and we'll just focus on two verses. They're remarkable. You'll see it. He says to them, but if you are careful to obey me, declares the Lord, and bring no load through the gates of the city on the Sabbath, but keep the Sabbath day holy by not doing any work on it, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of the city with their officials. They and their officials will come riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by the men of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever." Wow, is that right? Is that a little simplistic? If you just stop working on the Sabbath, it's like heaven on earth, right? Well, how can he say this? 
what he's doing is he's distilling covenant life into kind of the, the head of, bringing to a head the key point of obedience. And so for us, it's especially odd because Jesus set aside the Sabbath, right? But we'll, we'll talk about that. Why would the Sabbath be the key point of obedience? And it's because it represents covenant faithfulness, right? They were supposed to rest on the Sabbath. It was a sign that God rested and took up his throne on the seventh day. It was a sign of trusting God for provision. Actually, in Deuteronomy, in addition, it was an act of justice. Why? Because not only were they to rest, but they were to let their servants rest on the Sabbath day. Now, COVID's been interesting that way. A lot of us like to go out to eat on Sunday, and now we can't. Well, that gives a Sabbath to the people who work for us. A little bit different, but you get the idea. In addition, of course, it's an opportunity for worship. And so the issue is that if they would just stop once a week, it would express their trust in the Lord and their love for him. Trust and love expressed in the Sabbath. Well, how is this relevant for us? We understand in the new covenant that Sabbath is not required, but you may have forgotten why. Why is no Sabbath required in the new covenant? Because Jesus died on the cross that we could have a permanent rest from working for our salvation. So for the believer, actually, every day is Sabbath rest from works for salvation because Jesus did the work. And so every day Sabbath for the Christian. Um, and so every day should be a reminder that salvation is free. But nonetheless, we need to ask the question, are we trusting the market or God's provision, that would be our finances. But it's not just money. Are we trusting achievement or God's call for our significance? Some of us were like, okay, I can trust God for money, but boy, it's really hard to sit at home during COVID. Do I matter, right? Our significance as well. Sabbath really rests who we are in God. How can I tell my level of trust? Anxiety or peace? Passivity or generosity, communion with the Lord or restlessness, trust or frantic. Setting aside a day from work says that the market, achievement, and wealth do not define me. I have something beyond what the world says about me or what I achieve or show myself to be strong in in the world setting. Sabbath is the discipline of handing life, achievement, and provision back into the hands of God. So the first aspect of choosing God is trust. Another aspect of choosing God is hope. Now this brings us to chapter 18 of Jeremiah. And you may know the story of Jeremiah sent down to the potter's house and he's supposed to watch this guy make pots. And he says, I'll speak to you there. So Jeremiah goes down and watches this guy make pots. And then God explains that, see, just like this guy can have a pot that he doesn't like how it looks, and he can reshape it, God can reshape Judah like a pot. The central verses of this chapter, I want to read to you, verses 7 through 10, and I want to say this encouragement to you. Learn these four verses. These are really crucial. I think you'll see why, but I'll explain as well. So Jeremiah 18, he says, If at any time 
I announce that a nation or a kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. And if that nation repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Do you hear that? This is not just Judah that God will bless if they repent. This is any nation now. The old principles of the covenant now, God's saying, they apply to every people on earth. And then the other side is true as well, though, the negative. And if at another time I announce a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I intended to do for it. So for those of you that understand the Old Testament theology that God would bless Israel's obedience and curse her disobedience, Jeremiah 18 is saying, actually, that's how God deals with the whole world. That as we trust him and out of trust and faith obey, he will bless. And when we disobey, he will curse all nations. But, and here's the key. Well, it's right there. If they change, God will change. This is what we call prophetic contingency. Now, this has been implied in some of the earlier prophets, but Jeremiah now makes it clear that if God says something and a people hears this and they respond, he'll change his mind. This is why Jonah tells us, he tells God, he didn't want to preach to the Ninevites even though there was no hope of repentance in the message. When they repent, God repents. And Jonah says, you know, Gosh darn it. No, he doesn't say that. He says, you know, I knew it. I just knew you were merciful and loving. And if they repented, you wouldn't, yeah. You know, and he wanted them to be hurt. And they were his enemies. He didn't like them, right? So he didn't like that. Okay. So uh, it's been implied in the earlier prophets, but now Jeremiah makes it clear that in fact, God's warnings are always contingent because God is fundamentally merciful. And so if they will respond. If you repent, God will bless you. But then that's why verse 11, uh, and I didn't see this till recently, so 7 through 10 are the principle. But the application is, verse 11, now therefore say to the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says, look, I'm preparing a disaster for you and devising a plan against you, so turn from your evil ways, each one of you, and reform your ways and your actions. So he's saying, here's the general principle, right? If I warn a nation and they repent, then I'll repent. God will change his mind. And so then he says, and so I'm about to bring disaster on you. So change your mind. So verse 12 is our main point here. And this is the danger. Verse 12, but they will reply, it's no use. We'll continue with our own plans and each of us will follow the stubbornness of his evil heart. It's hopeless. I can't change. And maybe God won't have mercy kind of unbelief, but more likely just, I can't change. I've tried before. I just can't do it. The despair is a cover for unbelief and sloth of spirit. It's frightening. Someone so addicted to sin, so lethargic, so hypnotized by habits that they just walk zombie-like to the edge of the precipice and waste their life. 
But Jeremiah calls their bluff. God would respond to their repentance. The gospel brings hope. You know, sometimes you talk to people and they'll say, oh, you know, America's hopeless. America's not hopeless. No one is hopeless who will repent. There's always hope in God. See, think about it. How are we transformed? Well, you get forgiven, right? Jesus, forgive me my sins. And then we put to death the deeds of the flesh. But how do we do it? By the Holy Spirit. So that even the things that we do, we don't do. But God does through us. Ezekiel 36, 27. Even in the old covenant, Ezekiel knew this was coming. He says, I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So that when we're trapped and we feel despair, the message of the gospel is get forgiven and surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. God will help you. I'm not saying it'll always be easy, but there's always hope in Christ. Do you know anyone like that? Love them toward Christ. We face a day when some people have a gospel that's left them unchanged, but grace will change us. Look at Romans 8, 13, if you want to see this in a New Testament reflection. Paul says, for if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And I can't exegete Romans right now, of course, but he, Paul's not saying if, like, uh-oh, maybe you will. Maybe you will. He's saying you're a believer, you will. But that's, that's the teaching of the passage. And so our transformation is God's work in us, earnestly desired by us to be sure, and that's a part of how he works, but it is his work Listen, there's always hope in the gospel because hope is based on God's power, not my effort. I'll say that again. There's always hope in the gospel because our hope is based on God's power, not my effort. So the second aspect of choosing God is actually choosing hope. Third aspect of choosing God is endurance. Now, let me give you a little background and transition as we head toward where we're going with this. Judah makes it clear in the ensuing chapter, the rest of chapter 18, that they are not going to repent. They're not going to turn to God, and they're actually actively opposing Jeremiah. And so in chapter 19, you may know this prophecy, God says, I'm going to break the pot, which is Judah. I'm going to break it. And uh, maybe I'll read just two verses. Verse 14, Jeremiah then returned from Topeth where the Lord had sent him to prophesy and stood in the court of the Lord's temple and said to all the people, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, listen, I'm gonna bring on this city and the villages around it every disaster I pronounced against them because they were stiff-necked and would not listen to my words. Very, very sobering word. Well, so what do they do? They take him out. One of the head priests takes him out and... Uh, kind of straps him down over a board and locks him into the stocks 
to be mocked. Cruciform experience for Jeremiah, to be sure. So you can read about that in chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. They lock him up on these stocks. And Jeremiah, who is so bold in public, and I want you to see a little of his personality and what we say here the rest of this morning. As soon as the guy unlocks the stocks, he says this in verse 3. He's, or, well, maybe verse 4. Uh, For this is what the Lord says. I will make you a terror to yourself and all your friends. With your own eyes, you'll see them fall by the sword and their enemy. This guy just had him locked up overnight to be mocked by everybody. And as soon as he's unlocked, he's like, and God is going to judge you. I was like, whoa, you know. So Jeremiah was probably a little tough to be around. But anyway, he, uh, he is very, very courageous, right? So you think, okay, great spiritual hero. He is courageous. What a guy. This is amazing. Uh, and, you know, uh, wonderful in some ways. But one of the beauties of the book of Jeremiah is that we really see what went on inside as well. We don't just see his public face, we see his private face. And so that's what he reveals in the rest of chapter 20. So we're going to just read a little bit of this and you got to hear this, okay? So after he goes through all of this and utters the rebuke of this uh, priest, verse 7, Oh Lord, you deceived me (laughs) and I was deceived. You overwhelmed me and prevailed. I'm ridiculed all day long. Everybody mocks me. In other words, I didn't think this was what ministry was going to be like, you know? And uh, I had a different idea of what was coming here, Lord, and you, you deceived me. He's upset. Verse 8, whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. He says, this has cost me. I'm trying to speak the truth and not very many people were listening and they're making trouble for him and they're locking him up and later we'll learn that they throw him in a muddy pit or a well and they, you know, they just, oh, they mistreat him. So then you think, well, then maybe he just shut up. Well, that's what he says. In verse nine, he says, but if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, his word in my heart is like a fire a fire shut up in my bones. I'm weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. So it's like, oh, you know, I say this stuff and I get in trouble, but I try not to say it. It just burns in my spirit. Verse 10, I hear whispering terror on every side. Report him, let's report him. All my friends, friends, I don't know what he means by friends. All my friends are waiting for me to slip saying, perhaps he'll be deceived and then we'll prevail over him and take our revenge. And uh, so it's a terrifically difficult experience. It feels like God deceives him. He's insulted. When he decides to stop prophesying, God's word burns in him. God's word burns in him. He cannot hold it in. I covet that for us where his word burns in us and we have to share it. Then in verses 11 to 13, he praises God. Uh, But then verse 14 He really is upset. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a cry of battle at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb when my mother, with my mother as my grave, her womb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow 
and to end my days in shame. And you know, that is what happens to him. They try to escape to Egypt and he says, no, I don't want to go. Don't, you shouldn't do this. And they make him go along with him and we never hear of him again. Wow. He wishes he had not been born. What do we learn from this <laughs> lament? Probably the most intense of all the laments in chapters eight, 11 to 20. That genuine faithfulness is hard. Jeremiah is a powerful example of a real person who is suffering for doing good. He's no plastic person with a deep, cheap smile. He suffered, listen, he suffered to the point of wishing he'd never been born, but yet he endured. And he's a model of the cruciform, the Christ, the cross lifestyle by the way that he lived. I want us to think about this. Jeremiah here models two sides of discipleship, the courage to speak truth, but also an incredible vulnerability before God about what that truth cost him to speak. He's modeling a discipleship. He's, he's modeling Endurance witnesses to a greater reality, right? Endurance in persecution witnesses to the fact that there is a greater reality, something greater than my suffering, something greater than the price, that even in my own soul may be filled with torment, yet I will move forward. I'm witnessing to a greater reality. It's so Christ-like in its old covenant. It's so Christ-like in his demonstration that he would suffer for the sake of giving hope to others. And that's what happens. What happens is because Jeremiah suffered and they recorded his messages, the righteous remnant of the exile and the later restoration had hope. And in fact, we today still have hope as we read his messages and his experiences. So I want you to think about this. Jeremiah is not Jesus. He is just another human being. You also, when you endure through difficulty, people can read the book of your life and find hope. This is Jeremiah. This is not, you know, sometimes Jesus does something, well, that's Jesus. This is a human being, had the hope of the new covenant, doesn't even have the new covenant yet. And he endures, and he endures even protesting and in agony at times. But his witness gives hope. And you can do the same. When your life is not going the way that maybe you'd like it to go, but you know there's a greater reality that your life is a witness to you give witness to that hope when you endure. Even discomfort endured by faith demonstrates there's something else out there. Now, I like having a happy life. <laughs> I like when things go well. 
But when we know the Lord and we know that we're called to an eternal destiny and not just heaven someday, we know that here in this life, we are meant to love people. We're meant to serve them with our hands. We're meant to speak truth with our lips. When we understand that destiny, we can endure through terrific difficulty, witnessing to another hope, even if it's painful and we're, we're you know, talking to God about it, right? Lord, I didn't plan on this. But yet, Lord, you really are real. Your calling in my life is real. The gospel's real. Jesus is real. And when we endure through that, that is a message of hope for people all around us. A third aspect of choosing God is endurance. So our graduates are here this morning online. Our call is to make disciples in the midst of a world that's lost its mooring, lost its moral center, lost really even its, I'd call our epistemological center, our meaning and understanding. But we've chosen the source and center of truth, Jesus himself. Disciples choose the Lord by trusting, by hoping, by enduring. As we reflect on this today, what is God calling you to right now, today? What is the step? Is there a step of trust leading to a rest in your soul? Is there a step of hope that's going to lift that, that burden and that despair? Is there simply a call to endure leading to hope for others? We're going to pray for these graduates to be mighty in faith, hope, and endurance, be disciples for a lifetime. Join me as we pray and we pray for them. Lord, we thank you for each of these that a couple master's degrees and some undergrads that are starting out in life. We pray in Jesus' name that you would bring joy, you would bring peace, you'd bring endurance, you'd bring a faith in their souls that as you are leading them in career, possibly in marriage, um, maybe some are, I think, are already married. Um, we just pray in Jesus' name as you bless every aspect of their lives. Give them a deep connection to you, Lord, an endurance, a trust, and a faith that as they choose to serve you in their career and in their relationships, you bring lasting blessing. I pray for all of us, Lord. We want to walk in you, Lord, in that faith, that hope, that endurance. So Lord, work in our lives. We trust you. We thank you so much, Lord. Do your work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.